Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Sarah Daly about her book that's just come out from Princeton University Press in 2022, titled Violent Victors, Why Bloodstained Parties Win Post-War Elections. This is a very interesting book that tackles quite an important question um, that previously we saw lots of examples of, but didn't necessarily have a good understanding of what was actually going on and why. And the puzzle is quite simply why after civil wars end, the parties that were quite often in the midst of the fighting got their hands rather dirty, nevertheless seem to relatively often or more often than expected win democratic elections immediately after the war. Um, This book does a whole bunch of things to help us figure out what is actually going on practically, theoretically, um, and a whole bunch of other things. So I'm really pleased, Sarah, that you've joined us on the podcast to tell us all about your book. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start us off before we get into the details of the book by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Uh, so I'm Sarah Daly. I am Associate Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. Um, so why I wrote this book, um, two personal experiences sort of sparked the research for the book. Um, first, going back uh, to when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, I took a Terry Carl's human rights course, politics of human rights course. And We learned about um, Chile's coup and the repressive dictatorship that left over 40,000 victims. And shortly thereafter, I went to live in Santiago in in Chile, and I lived with a family that was very much pro-Pinochet and joining the ranks of about uh, 40%, uh, 44% of the population that were pro-Pinochet at the time, um, even after the transition to democracy. So I was struck by this. Um, I was struck again when I was researching my first book. Um, My book asked, why do some armed groups silence their guns while others um, return to organized violence? And the answer I find uh, lies with the geography of armed groups recruitment, whether local or non-local. And for this book, I engaged in 18 months of fieldwork in Colombia, conducting surveys of former combatants and their families and um, their psychologists and the civilian communities in which they lived. Uh, I engaged in participant observation across the armed group's zones of military operation. I interviewed over 300 former combatants and commanders, um, victims, civil society leaders, And ex-fighters and victims uh, told me about the indiscriminate massacres um, and torture and rapes and kidnappings and homicides that the paramilitaries had carried out. Um, And yet I found that in many places, the populations tolerated uh, and even endorsed uh, the former paramilitary forces and their allied politicians um, that had unleashed this ruthlessness uh, even after the forces had demilitarized. 
And I found that this um, behavior exhibits itself sort of really broadly. So that was what motivated me to write the book. Um, For example, in Guatemala in 1999, um, as I lay out in the book, the party of uh, Rios Montt, um, a butcher accused of genocide, uh, won the elections um, in El Salvador in 1994, um, what has been called the above-ground alter ego of the notorious death squad networks um, responsible with the armed forces for the vast majority of political killings won In Colombia in 2018, the party of President Alvaro Uribe, um, who was facing hundreds of uh, investigations for ties to paramilitaries um, and what Human Rights Watch called one of the worst episodes of mass atrocity in the Western Hemisphere, one. Um, This really exhibits itself around the world. Populations vote for political parties with really deep roots in the violent organizations of the past. Um, After nearly every civil war, um, long wars, short wars, uh, across a variety of political contexts um, in ethnic and non-ethnic societies, in rich and poor countries where peacekeepers are present, where they're absent, in all regions of the world. Um, So I I was puzzled by uh, this sort of broad, uh, wide-reaching behavior, um, political behavior after civil wars. That makes sense. It is a puzzle. And I'm very pleased that you've tackled it so that we can understand it better. Um, You've obviously kind of explained the puzzle and some of the uh, sort of gaps in our understanding, right, that it is a puzzle. We don't understand what's happening. Um, Is there anything further you'd like to kind of help us understand about where the current explanations are around explaining this um, and the gaps in those explanations? Sure. Um, So a first intuitive explanation um, for post-Civil War party success um, would be, it's just very intuitive, that parties that proved electorally successful were more restrained in their violence during war. Um, But I found that across post-war elections globally, the parties that proved electorally successful um, were not those that were more restrained in their wartime violence. Um, And the votes they won came not just from people who were their beneficiaries, um, or at least not victims of their transgressions. Um, Instead, uh, belligerents that committed high levels of wartime brutality uh, and that won militarily performed well in the elections. They performed just as well as war victors that had refrained from extensive atrocities. Um, Their votes came from regions that were terrorized in comparable rates to votes uh, in regions left uh, sort of unscathed by the belligerents' wartime violence. And victims themselves voted as often for their perpetrators as for parties unstained by war. Um, And so it's not that a pattern of atrocities is is mapping onto a pattern of votes. Um, A second explanation is that the votes were all forced, um, that they were cast out of fear of retribution or fear that uh, were they not to vote for uh, the party, that the party would return to war. or that the voting, a uh, third explanation is that the voting behavior could be explained uh, by a fog of war, that um, the voters didn't know whom the perpetrators were, or were ignorant about the nature of the atrocities. Um, but I found that the parties won abundant, freely cast votes uh, in post-war elections, widely seen as free and fair. 
And while the fog of war was still lifting, um, in many places, the elections followed widely publicized reports of truth commissions. Um, So voters could well have known whom to blame for the violence before casting their votes. Um, And finally, um, explanations from political behavior on clientelism and economic voting um, can explain a share of the vote, but it leaves um, a lot of the the, um, variation in post-war votes unexplained. Um, And I sort of focus on this uh, share of the the vote that can be explained by the legacies of mass violence and war. so existing explanations, I found, uh, are insufficient to explain what's going on uh, in the aftermath of, of, um, of war. So that leads us very nicely to your argument. How do you help us better understand this? So I guess just a very brief summary is that overall, I found that the electoral success of bloodstained parties uh, depends not on the extent of their wartime atrocities or electoral coercion, but on the military outcomes of the war. Um, so bloodstained parties, if war winning, uh, successfully campaign as the best providers of future societal peace. Fascinating. Okay. Now, don't worry. We are going to go into that in detail um, because it is really interesting. And there's a bunch of, you show this in theory, you show this in examples, um, and hopefully we'll be able to get through all the main points of that argument. Though, of course, the book has loads of detail we probably won't be able to cover. Um, But starting kind of with one of the first pieces of that, can you tell us about what military outcomes you look at and then how those outcomes influence blame? when it comes to wartime violence. Yeah, so the book conceives of war outcomes on a spectrum that ranges from outright government victory to outright rebel victory, um, with relative government victory and, and a military draw in between. So the argument is that winning belligerents, um, and even those that achieve at best a stalemate, are able to claim credit for peace. And this credit for peace serves to justify their use of atrocities. They convince the population to compare their use of violence in war, not to a world in which they never used violence, that no violence occurred, but one in which the violence continued. And relative to this bleak prospect, the war-ravaged population rewards them for the relief, for the psychological relief of peace. This cleanses these parties, these winning belligerent parties' military record, which then translates into a reputation for competence on the provision of security. That's really interesting to think about because, again, looking at the previous explanations of kind of, oh, coercion or ignorance or um, economic incentive, uh, a lot of those explanations are lacking kind of this idea of you can have all the information and you can choose to prioritize kind of peace of mind um, of solidifying hopefully an end to violence. Um, So it's a really interesting finding that of course there are then variations of. And so I'd love for you to explain to us um, kind of within this sort of 
idea, right? Parties have a lot of different options for how they interact, right? Because it's not necessarily inevitable that a party is going to successfully transition from being a wartime outfit to a peacetime one necessarily. Um, And you outline this in theory and in practice that there are different things that parties can do. Um, Can you tell us about kind of the restrained Leviathan option, which by the way, was a great phrase. (laughs) Um, What is this option available to bloodstained parties? Um, or is it available to all of them? Kind of what kinds of parties can use this? What does it look like? So I, first to set the, the scene, belligerents often face um, what I call rule abider non-belligerent parties, and we can get more into what that means. Um, and also populations uh, that question whether the belligerents will re-victimize in the future. Um, also to perform well in post-war elections, belligerent parties usually must reach beyond their hardcore supporters to win the broader electorate of swing and victimized voters. So as a result, war winners need to signal not only strength, but also restraint. And so this is where the restrained Leviathan um, strategy comes in. And I show that this is the optimal strategy for war winning um, and stalemated uh, belligerents. Uh, These signals of restraint um, include purging rights abusers from their successor party um, or burying them in closed lists, um, while also keeping the strong leader in charge um, and prioritizing the security valence issue. Um, This enables them to signal the party's security credentials, um, but also um, signaling that that the party will not uh, be likely to turn its guns against the population in the future. Um, Also moderating positionally in order to draw attention to their valence advantage, their security valence advantage over um, what are usually positional disadvantages, since these are usually more radical uh, parties since war uh, favors um, radicalization of politics. Um, And so this is the optimal strategy, which I call this restrained Leviathan playbook. Um, And voters prioritizing security support these restrained Leviathans who promise societal peace going forward. So the belligerent successor party can own the security issue that's salient, that's so paramount to large numbers of voters emerging uh, from the anarchy of civil war. And and it's by winning the security issue that these parties are able to perform well in elections. Um, I should mention, and uh, we can get more into this, but the elections of these bloodstained parties also have really important implications for peace and democracy and justice and governance. And so the overall argument is that um, peace tends to consolidate, but in electing peace and security, um, voters forego or postpone uh, legal accountability for past atrocities um, and suffer potential degradation uh, in their democracies and social welfare. Mm. Yeah, we're definitely going to get onto that. Um, but first, I wanted to ask kind of about more, I suppose, methods, a methods question, I bet. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier in the interview kind of how much research and how much work went into the book. And in the answer you've just described to us of kind of the restrained Leviathan method, uh, voter preference is obviously central to understanding what's happening. So could you tell us a bit more about how you assessed, how you looked at individual voting behavior um, and what that research piece particularly showed? 
Sure. Yeah. So I use both um, experimental survey data from Colombia, um, uh, observational survey data from uh, 16 countries, and then election data globally, um, collected both at the national level and then at the smallest administrative unit uh, possible, municipal or provincial. Um, The observational survey data across 16 countries shows that on average, um, about 50 54% of respondents were most concerned with securing the future. Um, And these security voters were significantly more likely to cast their ballots for the winning combatant party um, over either militarily losing or non-belligerent parties. Um, So that's sort of generalizable uh, information about from the observational survey data. And then I embedded um, a variety of experiments, conjoint, um, vignette, and list experiments in an original face-to-face survey of 855 victims um, and 645 non-victims across um, municipalities in Colombia. And I used a vignette survey experiment which randomized the provision of hypothetical security um, and then measured its mitigating effect on blame for atrocities. Um, I found strong support for the ability of winning belligerents to shift voters' reference points, um, mitigate their culpability, and cleanse their reputations for security competence. Um, So again, this is the idea that um, these parties are able to convince voters to compare uh, their violence to a world in which um, uh, the violence continued relative uh, instead of a world in which there was never any violence. Um, And so using that kind of um, shift of the reference points uh, does indeed change the attribution of blame and then launder um, these parties' records um, past records built on their military uh, experience, launders these records such that they can emerge with this reputation for competence on the provision of security. Um, And then in another experiment uh, in this Colombian survey, a conjoint, a double conjoint, I test whether the different attributes of this restrained Leviathan strategy, this is um, security valence over other valence issues such as the economy, um, pairing strongmen with a clean civilian um, in order to signal both strength and restraint um, and ideological moderation, whether this restrained Leviathan strategy um, and its different attributes and its attributes together influence voters, especially victim and swing voters, uh, perceptions of a candidate's competence on security and their electability. Um, And I find strong support that each of these attributes uh, increases uh, victims and um, especially victims and swing voters' perceptions of candidates' competence on the provision of security. And then they have this unique effect that only this playbook can have on, um, uh, on perceptions of competence on security and electability. Thank you for taking us through those various different experiments. Um, I think it is really interesting finding and also um, quite useful to kind of hear uh, about methods, right? A lot of people listening to this are doing research and it's always useful to know sort of what other people have done and how they figured it out. So thank you for sharing that um, with us. I do want to kind of stay on this a little bit and kind of ask about how some of these pieces come together because I was really interested in the case study section of your book. You talk about how kind of the puzzle of why are these parties electorally successful, quote, intensified um, when we look at the particular case study of Guatemala. So I was wondering if you could help us understand kind of 
what is the extraness um, mm-hmm. of this case and how do we see all of these pieces coming together through this particular example? Sure. Um, so Guatemala's 36-year war was really brutal. Um, the military under the FRG party, uh, Rios Montt, carried out the Mayan Holocaust, um, which qualified as genocide under international law. Uh, the Truth Commission found that the government was responsible for um, over 90% of the atrocities. Um, so in this case, the war ended with a government win. So um, strongly asymmetrically in favor of the government. Uh, military. In 1999, um, founding free and fair post-war elections were held, uh, which pitted uh, this uh, Rios Montt's militarily winning brutal government successor party, um, FRG, against a strong party without blood on its hands um, called PAN. PAN was formed by technocrats and businessmen um, and had had no involvement in the military government's Um, And then the losing, uh, far less violent URNG uh, rebels also tried um, their hands at the polls. So uh, why the puzzle is intensified in this case, and I want to tell you about how this uh, untainted uh, and less tainted um, parties um, lost the founding elections, as I think it does exemplify the puzzle um, and the dynamics dealt with in the book. Um, So... This narrative uh, was based uh, on in-depth interviews uh, and also various archives, including uh, 11,000 ephemera held at Princeton uh, and over 2,000 declassified primary um, source documents held in the National Security Archives. Um, so to set the stage for, for the Guatemalan case, um, uh, sort of as the theory would predict, uh, coming out of the war, Guatemala's electorate um, were victimized. Um, One fifth of um, the population were direct victims. And if you add their networks, this is a large uh, proportion of the population. Um, they also cared about security. Uh, 34% of the population um, listed security as the most important issue, um, a proportion rivaling all economic issue from uh, unemployment to poverty, welfare, healthcare uh, combined. And then 89% of the population of the electorate were unaligned. Um, so they were unaligned co-optable voters. So this meant that to perform well elector- electorally, uh, the parties had to appeal beyond their core supporters uh, to try to win over these victimized security uh, and swing voters. The theory predicts that non-belligerent parties' optimal strategy uh, will be rule abider, um, to offer security within the confines of the law um, because they can point to their clean records in war. and PAN really conformed with this expectation. It ran as the party that respects the law, um, and it pinned its security competence on its lack of past uh, transgressions. Um, it undermined uh, FRG's competence on security by arguing that FRG would yield uh, only, um, quote, this is from its platform, um, more impunity and abuses of human rights. Um, to make this legalistic claim, it ran uh, clean civilians and suits. Uh, it targeted moderate voters. It offered sort of general competence, uh, pan responde, pan responds and get thing, gets things done. And it emphasized uh, punishment of uh, FRG's violent past. And then in response to this really strong uh, pan plea from this non-belligerent 
party to for voters to choose an unstained party. FRG, uh, as predicted by the theory, adopted this optimal um, strategy for a winning belligerent successor party. It ran as a restrained Leviathan. Uh, FRG argued that Rios Montt had delivered a decisive solution to the conflict, which brought peace to the country. Uh, It contended that for not doubling down on its violence, um, but instead effectively ending it, it should be rewarded. Uh, Rios Montt claimed, um, quote, it will be history, the record of pacification that will judge what has been done in the past, uh, meaning this record of atrocity. Um, FRG perceived its competence uh, and credibility on prospective security uh, to lie not only with this cleansed uh, military record, but also with its ties to the coercive apparatus um, and the sort of symbolic edge that it had in its uh, strongman. Um, uh, Rios Montt was sort of conveyed as the old-fashioned caudillo, the man on horseback who saves the nation. Uh, he campaigned only in army uniform um, as sort of the party's symbol of strength. Um, and then uh, they, the FRG primed the security issue by arguing that um, Guatemala was emerging from anarchy, um, war of all of against all that justified submission to a strongman sovereign um, in Hobbes's terms. Um, and it emphasized security competence over position on which it had a strong disadvantage, given that it was a historically um, far right radical party. Um, and it did so by moderating ideologically. But as sort of the the theory lays out, um, the opposition's ads warned voters that FRG has, uh, quote, bullets planned for the future. And so FRG also had to signal restraint, um, which it did by pairing the Rios Monk candidacy with uh, leftist Portillo, who is a victim of the conflict, um, and could therefore signal that FRG would not re-victimize the former armed and unarmed uh, political left. FRG also took sort of the further costly signal um, of restraint by purging human rights abusers from its elite um, and stacking its legislative tickets with mostly civilian candidates, uh, including its former enemies and victims. Um, And so finally, just turning to the other contender in the election, the URNG rebels, um, The theory argues that war losers' inability to offset their violent past um, with credit for peace means that they emerge from war with little credibility on the provision of security. Um, And so their optimal strategy, which URNG um, adopted, um, is apologizing for their transgressions, purging their ranks, appointing civilian candidates, while advancing more ideologically distinctive positions to compensate for their security competence disadvantage. This is a strategy I label tactical and moderate, Um, and it allows the losers party to survive based on their ideological brand um, in subsequent elections. So URNG uh, emphasized um, non-security issues, um, uh, quote, you cannot forget that the rumbling of the stomach is louder than the blast of the gun. Um, It demonstrated contrition. um, It Uh, advanced a non um, or sort of an immoderate platform, reform, 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 um, and ideologically um, aligned voters um, of the poor, by the poor, and for the poor. And so it was able to gain a a place at the table of post-war politics, um, even though it was a limited one. Uh, So turning from the, um, the parties to 
to the voters. Um, voters face this clean, uh, what I call rule abider, non-belligerent, the cleaner, tactical, a moderate rebel belligerent, uh, and the brutal restrained Leviathan government belligerent parties. Um, and in line with the theory, voters counterintuitively credited the brutal one, FRG for peace, blamed the less brutal one, URNG rebels, for the wartime violence, and then saw the non-belligerent neutrally. Um, and then with its sort of cleansed record and restrained Leviathan electoral strategy, FRG was able to win uh, security, swing, and victim voters. Um, a majority viewed FRG as best able to implement peace and fight crime. Um, that 32% of the population were security voters and 85% of these voters chose FRG. Um, as a comparison, 3% of security voters voted for the rebels. Um, the FRG also won swing voters. Um, and among direct victims of the violence, of which approximately 90% would have been victims of the government, uh, 47% stated that they intended to vote for the FRG, while only 36% of victims of the violence planned to vote for non-belligerent PUN, which had only this peaceful record. Um, and of the war's victims, 8% stated um, they would vote for URNG. Um, I think tellingly, 84% of victims who declared voting on security lines uh, supported the FRG. And so uh, this, I think this case really um, intense, the puzzles really intensified in this case. Um, but I should sort of zoom out and say that the book compares this Guatemalan case uh, to the case of rebel victory in Nicaragua um, and a military draw in El Salvador um, and looks more briefly at party strategies uh, in Colombia. Um, this sort of tests of the party underpinnings of the theory um, rely on archival research and um, hundreds of in-depth interviews with victims and victimizers, politicians, party strategists um, over two years of field work. Um, I use analysis of parties' platforms and propaganda, electoral targets and candidate lists um, using both natural resource, uh, natural language processing and hand coding. Um, and overall, the case studies show strong support for the violent victors theory, um, but also because the real world is obviously far more complex than any parsimonious theory could um, try, to, uh, um, try to imagine. The cases also show important nuances um, beyond the theory. Thank you for taking us through that case study. I think it does show the theory and the nuance, kind of as you just said, um, that that's really important when we look at case studies. So um, I'm pleased that you've brought that up. Um, but I do kind of want to move now beyond the case studies, the four of them that you've mentioned that go into lots of detail in the book. Um, to what extent do you think this model and theory is applicable beyond these particular examples? So the book uses cross-national data um, and also sub-national data um, and the survey data just described to show that the patterns are broadly applicable around the world. Um, specifically, I use an original cross-national data set of the full universe of belligerents around the world that transitioned from war um, between 1970 and 2015. Um, this results in a data set of 205 civil war belligerents across 57 different states. 
Um, and it's the first data set um, to study post-war electoral outcomes of both the rebel side um, and also the government side of the conflict. And then to sort of put these parties in their natural strategic habitat of um, engaging with parties uh, without a violent past. Um, this new cross-national data set um, uh, reveals that war outcomes prove powerful predictors of the electoral performance of belligerent parties, both rebel and government, uh, in founding post-war elections. Um, if militarily winning, abusive belligerent parties perform well, even where the elections are clean, free, and fair. Um, and so sort of this broad, um, the, the key hypothesis of the book um, of a relationship between war outcomes and post-war electoral success holds across this um, broad set of cases. Um, for 18 conflicts globally, I find that parties' vote share remained relatively constant, whether the belligerents were responsible for um, all or none of the atrocities at the local level but that these vote shares track with whether the belligerents militarily won or lost the war locally. Mm. Um, but then I look um, at sort of the scope conditions for the theory. Um, that is, like, would the book log- the book's logic hold if the framework's other core assumptions were relaxed? Um, so these include ethnic wars, uh, where swing voters uh, may have been erased, um, successful secessionist wars, in which the electorate may become bifurcated, uh, and clientelistic systems in which programmatic politics may play a minor role. Um, and the data on all belligerents that transitioned from civil war over 45 years uh, and anecdotal evidence from a variety of cases globally shows that the theory works best in post-war contexts in which security remained highly salient and politics programmatic, um, but that it may extend even where political linkages uh, center on clientelism. Um, So it's likely true that whether the main cleavage is ethnic or non-ethnic, whether the rebels seek state takeover or territorial autonomy, does probably influence the fluidity of voter allegiances after armed conflict, whether parties need to seek their victims' votes, um, and whether direct victims and conflict-affected citizens might vote for violent perpetrators. Um, so there are interesting nuances and, I think, opportunities for future research of rigorously applying the theory um, broadly to cases of ethnic wars. Um, I'm beginning to do this for the cases in the Balkans, um, which exhibited the full range of war outcomes, government victory in Croatia, draw in Bosnia, uh, and rebel victory in Kosovo. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Before we get into what you might be working on now or next, I'd love to pick up a point um, mentioned earlier in the interview about kind of the broader implications um, for this idea of the violent victors. What impact do you find it has that these parties um, can be quite successfully elected on the durability of peace more broadly? You spoke a little bit about the trade-offs. Can you tell us more? So the book is about uh, why these parties that committed atrocities in war um, perform well in post-war elections, um, how they run, why voters uh, would elect their tormentors to govern them. But then it is also about the implications of these elections of bloodstained parties um, for uh, peace and security, uh, justice, democracy, and welfare. Um, And So the theory argues that in electing belligerent parties, um, voters gain peace uh, but lose liberal democracy, justice, and welfare. Um, So turning to your question about uh, peace, um, 
the core argument implies that uh, against sort of offsided fears that post-conflict elections are um, are destabilizing, uh, leading to war recurrence. I find that uh, they often lead to to peace. Um, I'll walk you through sort of some different scenarios. Um, I elaborate on these in an article in International Security. Um, so I, I've spent uh, this discussion that we've been having telling you about how war winners tend to win uh, the elections. Uh, and these war winners are best able not only at tying their own hands, uh, but also at deterring uh, losers from remilitarizing. And so I argue that if the military uh, distribution of, of power after war uh, remains constant, there's little reason for either the war winners or the war losers to reinitiate violence because a new war would just lead to the same outcome um, and with the same electoral outcome. And so peace should hold. Uh, and this is the most likely outcome. I call this Leviathan peace. But if the balance of power instead inverts after war's end um, and using the heuristic of war outcomes to guide their vote, as I've been telling you about, uh, the electorate now chooses a weaker war winner because the war winner is now weaker because of this change in military power. Um, This means that electoral results become misaligned uh, with military power and the newly empowered belligerent um, should be incentivized to return to war um, because of the strong correlation between war outcomes and electoral performance in this first electoral contest uh, creates these perverse incentives. The belligerent will reinitiate fighting um, to try to take advantage of a power change because it hopes to try its hands at the polls again in the future from a position of a superior war outcome. I do um, want to tell you, so this, these are the two most common scenarios, uh, Leviathan peace um, and what I call revisionist war. Um, These are most common because of the prevalence of security voting and the use of the war outcome heuristic. But there are two other scenarios that I think are worth just touching upon very briefly, Um, and especially um, what I call residual pieces is is worth touching on because uh, I think it points to how you might bolster non-belligerent parties um, in the aftermath of war um, and thereby sort of undercut the power of these bloodstained parties. Um, And so there is a situation in which um, residual peace emerges because the um, power balance holds, but security is instead not highly salient or the belligerent successor party campaigns poorly, meaning it doesn't choose one of the equilibrium strategies I spoke of, or voters prefer rule of law. Um, So in these situations, the war winner loses the election, um, but usually loses it to a non-belligerent. And therefore, there's no anticipation of future security voting. And so the war winner will concede electoral defeat um, and peace holds. Um, And finally, just really briefly, there's a case of recalibrated peace when the power balance shifts, but citizens do engage in accurate updating and elect the now strengthened war loser. Um, And given the power shift, the war winner would enter future polls, the war loser, and therefore peace also holds. so I, I use a variety of data on um, whether the belligerents returned to war and who initiated the new fighting um, and data on shifts in, in power um, after war. 
Um, And I find in confirmation of this hypothesis that belligerents proved more likely to demilitarize if the power balance held stable and the war winner won the election. Um, But where the power balance became inverted and the war winner nonetheless won the election, um, the belligerents tended to plunge their countries back into war. Um, And that these scenarios that I spoke of um, in which the war winner lost the election um, with either a stable or upset power balance um, were rarer but faced a negligible risk of remilitarization, um, substantiating this logic of residual and recalibrated peace. So overall, peace tends to be the dominant outcome um, uh, after um, after war um, and after these elections, meaning that they are not as destabilizing as assumed. Um, but I think it's important to highlight that in electing this Leviathan peace and experiencing these gains in security, the book's argument um, suggests that citizens often sacrifice social welfare. Um, so we know that one of the challenges in studying um, governance implications of this sort of commonplace election of bloodstained parties would be endogeneity bias um, because the elections of these parties is is not random and a variety of factors might influence both their likelihood of being elected and also influence how they would govern. Um, And so I use a data set, um, original data set of 784 paramilitary mayors, which I derive from over 42,000 pages of sentencing documents um, in order to study uh, and compare the administrations of mayors, paramilitary mayors that barely won and barely lost um, their elections um, with a regression discontinuity design. And um, I find that the election of sort of bloodstained politicians generated an improvement in security um, and a reduction in common crime, but had really pernicious effects on the provision of other public goods, um, especially education. Um, So when a paramilitary mayor barely won an election, the municipality experienced um, on average an 85% reduction in thefts, um, but also a 17% um, reduction in educational coverage uh, and a 61% um, reduction in educational spending compared to municipalities uh, in which such mayors narrowly lost. Um, I take this up more in a British Journal of Political Science article, but the mechanism is that politicians' prioritization of security crowded out resources for social welfare. So we see positive effects um, on peace and security, um, but with really um, negative effects in other areas. I also look at the effects on justice um, and on democracy. um, And I similarly find um, a reduction in legal accountability um, and an increase in amnesties um, and um, a reduction in in, uh, liberal democracy where the bloodstained parties um, win by larger margins. So given these findings about kind of the wider implications, what are the policy aspects of this? Yeah, so there are a variety of implications of the book for for sort of uh, our understanding of um, post-war politics and also of policy. Um, So first, I want to sort of emphasize that the theory might seem to imply really perverse incentives for belligerents to engage in ruthless violence in war um, in order to obtain the upper hand militarily and then electorally. Um, The theory 
does suggest dangerous incentives to start wars if victory seems assured. Um, it indicates that if winning in war, belligerents can escape electoral retribution for their transgressions in the short run. But these transgressions are unlikely to increase prospects for wartime military success. Um, indeed, so many studies have shown the counterproductive nature of indiscriminate violence and war, um, and my own work has, has done so. Um, and in the long run, the ghosts from the past tend to catch up with their victimizers. So it's not their atrocities that bolster belligerent parties in post-war elections, it's winning the war that does so. I also want to highlight that the theory might revise but does not completely undercut um, the conventional wisdom that actors guilty of really egregious acts of violence um, will try not to end their wars because they fear what will happen to them in the war's aftermath. Um, The logic does imply that weaker belligerents who will face most of the blame for the war have a greater incentive to hold out um, than war winners um, who are better positioned to shield themselves from future prosecution. But uh, at the same time, notable research has implied that internationally imposed justice and the International Criminal Court could penetrate these war winners' shields of impunity, um, the prospect of which could alter their decision to to cease fire. Um, So now turning to sort of the broader implications of the book. so first, thinking about its um, effects on election, of the effects of the elections on peace and justice, democracy and governance, um, I think these implications really reinforce our knowledge of the trade-offs inherent in transitions. Um, these have been noted by many scholars that what's necessary to avert insecurity and recurrent war in the aftermath of mass violence could perversely protect human rights abusers from justice um, and prevent the country from effectively resolving what Samuel Huntington called its torture problem and hinder the deepening of democracy. So the book uncovers these tensions and dilemmas um, inherent in the inclusion of violent uh, perpetrators in democratic politics. Ultimately, it's the voters themselves who have to weigh these trade-offs and choose between peace um, or justice and democratization in the short term. The good news of the book, though, is that even if voters prioritize peace, uh, justice and democratization may also eventually become possible. Um, So while respecting the agency of electorates um, who are living through these turbulent transitions from war to peace, um, there are uh, some outsider actions that could speed up the normalization of politics. Um, Especially um, helpful might be interventions aimed at securing the peace, um, buttressing the balance of power, preventing waves of criminality, um, reducing the urgency of security issues, um, and countering strategic efforts to spin the violent past, um, because this, these interventions would uh, dampen uh, the perverse electoral potency of war outcomes um, and amplify opportunities um, for justice and liberalism. Um, if you'll allow me, I'll sort of walk through a couple more precise, uh-huh. actionable conclusions. Um, So the book's analyses suggest that citizens tend to elect peace, um, but that preventing uh, perilous shifts in the balance of power in the lead up and aftermath of the elections is critical. Um, So there 
a number of ways the international community might consider doing so. Um, they could avert asymmetric demobilization processes that strengthen certain belligerents while weakening others. Um, this is a topic that I dealt with in great detail in my first book. Um, a, the international community could further try to deter um, foreign interveners from using elections as their exit, um, because this is a strategy that destabilizes um, because the power tends to shift when they withdraw um, and belligerents gain incentives to remilitarize in order to establish the new power balance prior to future elections. Uh, delaying post-war polls to allow time to bolster democratic institutions um, may prove beneficial, um, but it should be noted that this type of delay does risk the um, possibility of dangerous power shifts. Um, and while power sharing does uh, confer a variety of benefits, it doesn't seem able to prevent electoral losers from returning to war if they face a power shock. Um, so if power sharing were instead rendered endogenous to changing power dynamics after war, it could be far more effective at averting the resumption of hostilities. Um, Stabilizing the power balance is critical to the consolidation of peace, um, but where instability is unavoidable, um, trying to detect and communicate the new uh, power balance to um, the decisive audience of voters um, would make it more likely that they would elect the um, stabilizing power uh, in what I called that recalibrated peace. Um, so overall, trying to understand the electoral incentives and de- disincentives for remilitarization uh, could reveal ways to ballast the country, um, weathering these, these stormy seas of the transition. Um, a second set of actionable conclusions um, concern uh, non-belligerent parties. I think it's important for understanding how to counter violent politicians even outside of post-war environments. Um, several, several of these implications may even apply to the U.S. context in the aftermath of, of January 6th. Um, but let me spell them out for the post-war context and you can sort of use your imagination to translate them um, to the U.S. So... Security voting gives war winners um, the upper hand in elections, um, but there are ways to render the electoral playing field more more competitive um, and enhance the prospects for these non-belligerent parties. Um, So first, belligerent parties' electoral success requires that security remain salient. Um, And so anything that um, can be done to consolidate the transition, to prevent spikes in crime that often happen after war, and otherwise reduce the urgency of security issues, could do a lot to take away power, um, electoral power, um, of winning the war. We know from a lot of prior work, and and my book supports this, that citizens who perceive themselves safe are more likely to prioritize civil liberties and the rule of law. Um, And and this is helpful to non-belligerent parties. Um, Second, belligerent successor parties have incentives to run on security. um, And so they also have an incentive to sustain the salience of security in voters' minds. Uh, through scary rhetoric um, uh, and potentially a persisting threat of low-level violence. So they will sort of point to, to anarchy, to, um, to insecurity, to crime rates. They might even foment um, low-level violence um, in order to keep security very, very salient. So any steps to counter this kind of fear-mongering politics um, could be really valuable. 
And then electoral performance tracks um, with party strategies in the book and parties that adopt off off equilibrium paths tend to disappoint and disappear. Um, So interventions that help non-belligerents adopt this what I call rule abider strategy, um, promising security within the confines of the law, running candidates with clean human rights uh, records, advancing moderate policies and targeting the median voter um, could also um, be helpful, um, as would be um, efforts to um, boost um, non-belligerent parties' advantages on non-security issues, um, such as uh, the economy or, or other issues. Um, Finally, I'll just quickly comment on policies to advance justice um, after atrocities and war um, in light of the book's argument. Um, So the election of of, uh, violent victors um, tends to forestall legal accountability. Um, But it's important to note that the mitigating role of security on desires for retribution against war winners for their carnage may wane over time. And so demands for prosecution may expand. Unfortunately, the international justice community tends to disengage just at the moment when it might have the most impact um, in the medium term, when changes in citizens' preferences might make this expansion of accountability more feasible. Uh, Over time, supporting civil society and victims' mobilization in pursuit of punishment, truth, and reparations may prove advantageous. So when the conditions really allow for peace um, because security has consolidated um, and there's less of this sort of justification, mitigation, offsetting of the belligerents' atrocities um, by this provision of peace. Um, Also... It's clear um, from the book's argument um, that um, propaganda and persuasion can make a a fissure between what scholars call forensic truth and narrative truth. Um, And so interventions aimed at ensuring balanced media access and increasing the pluralism of voices, countering misinformation and and creating greater competition um, in in the marketplace of ideas um, may facilitate um, justice. Um, And so they really merit greater international investment. Thank you for walking us through kind of the multiple aspects of these implications and kind of how they can play out and how they relate. It's really um, helpful to have that and speaks to kind of the contributions of the book on a theoretical level, historical level, but also very much a practical level. So thank you for that. Um, And really leaves only my final question, which is hopefully not the hardest one I've asked you. Um, Mm. This book has just come out, uh, but is there something you might be working on next you could give us a sneak preview of? Yes, I have a bunch of projects I'm really excited about. Um, My first big project is on criminal war. Um, So criminal violence is a leading cause of death and insecurity um, in in the world. And turf war between criminal groups causes a majority of this violence. Um, So this new project co-authored with um, Elena Barham, a PhD candidate at Columbia, um, brings criminal violence into the field of international relations um, and develops a bargaining theory of why criminal groups uh, prove more likely um, to fight or agree to truces. Um, It relies on really rich uh, city block month level data um, on criminal group turf um, and violence and varied shocks um, emanating from um, different arms control um, uh, reforms um, and uh, to housing demolitions. Um, 
I'm also working on a second project um, on sort of a bottom-up study of great power rivalry uh, that explores how great powers, public diplomacy, and military intervention um, affect mass attitudes in target countries um, and with what downstream implications for these countries' foreign policy. Um, So this is a bigger project that builds on an experimental paper um, that I co-authored with Professor John Marshall and PhD, uh, Columbia PhD candidates, um, Elena Barham, Julian Jerez, and Oscar Pocasangre on the effects of vaccine diplomacy on trust in great powers in Latin America. Um, So that's a fun project. Um, And then um, I'm also conducting experimental research on uh, political conflict and emotions um, with Elsa Voites and our project um, looks at whether transitional justice has its assumed impact on victim emotions. Um, so we share um, with victims randomized videos um, of real um, transitional justice proceedings, um, seeing um, perpetrators apologize, um, deny the violence, um, be acquitted for for the violence, um, and then um, gain long uh, life imprisonment uh, sentences. Um, and we find that trials provide not only accountability, but also also information to victims that that really complicate the legacies of armed conflict um, for for justice. Um, And then I have some projects on immigration and xenophobia in the global south, on ethics of researching armed groups, um, on transformations in organized crime and political behavior. So lots of exciting research stuff going on. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, They all sound absolutely fascinating. So best of luck with them. Um, And while you are off pursuing those many different projects, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Violent Victors, Why Bloodstained Parties Win Post-War Elections from Princeton University Press in 2022. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.